0: All right, we are in Judges again. Surprise, surprise. We're almost done. I think there's three more um, times that we'll spend in the book. And today, you might be a little bit terrified if you can read up here that we're going to cover 13 through 16. And don't worry, nobody's more terrified than me about that. But we are not going to actually read the entirety of these passages. We are going to, um, sort of as we did last week, but probably even more so, my encouragement to you is to keep your Bibles open. And we will go and we will read some select passages. Now, this is all about Samson. And you might be familiar with some things about Samson either way. So my encouragement to you, if you hadn't um, read this leading up to this morning, would be to go back to this story of Samson later today, or maybe later on in the week, and examine some of the finer details here. I'm gonna to try to hit all the highlights here, which is a little bit of an overwhelming thing because no judge gets more attention than Samson. Okay, we had Gideon and, and Gideon's son Abimelech, which was you know a really big deal, but as far as this one last judge, he gets a huge chunk of the story of this book, almost exclusively about him. So we're gonna look at Judges 13. 14, 15, and 16. I'm going to just go ahead and pray to start us off here. Remember, if you'd like to get a bulletin, there is an outline for the sermon. If you want to see kind of some of the main points that we're going to um, want to focus on through his story. It doesn't necessarily go in chronological order as I try to do with the outlines. There's a couple of themes here that we'll see. But um, for now, let's go ahead and ask for the Lord's help as we hear his word. And consider what he has to tell us and how we can walk in obedience and in faith to him today. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious Lord, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. What a wonderful, precious commodity commodity that we've been given by you. That you have written these things down, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, for our learning so that we might see these examples of how you relate to people, of your intentions to save, of your great grace and the satisfaction that is found in you alone. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would open up our eyes, that we would not be blinded as Samson was for so much of his life and then even literally at the end of his life. Lord, that you would lighten our eyes, that we would see the truth of your word, And that it would change us as we go through this amazing story, Lord. I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin of our own wrongdoing. Righteousness that you are good and perfect in all ways. And judgment that apart from Jesus, we deserve permanent condemnation and separation from all the goodness of what you've given us in our lives. And that judgment has fallen on Christ so that we could be free. What a wonderful story your entire word leads us to. And we pray this morning that we would see Jesus in the book of Judges and in particular Samson's life. We thank you. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the title here is A View to the King and His Kingdom. Okay, so we're kind of going to follow this track of from the beginning of this chapter to the end of chapter 16, this idea of seeing things rightly. Um, The first thing that you'll notice in chapter 13, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the what of the Lord? The sight of the Lord. Okay, so we got this as a bookend here. This word is going to be um, kind of the two bookends of what we're looking at here because how does Samson end up? He ends up captured by his enemies. They gouge out his eyes. Sorry to go PG-13 for a second there. His eyes are gone. He can't see at the end of this story, but he's never had a clearer vision of God and who he is and what he's doing than when he was physically blinded. And this is important because what you'll see in Samson's story is a reflection of three things. And I'll mention this later on, but I want you to think about this as maybe you're looking at your outline. We'll get to that outline in a second here. But what Samson does as a person Rather, what God does through Samson in his life is he shows us something of Samson, the person, his own individual life. He also shows us a lot about the state of Israel and the nation that God had selected and set apart to be his own special people, to be a light to the rest of the world, and to make known the true God to people who are far off from him. And and the people have wandered incredibly far this time. I know I say that every week, right? Because you've, see, you've seen the cycle. People do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord sends judgment upon them. They cry out. God is merciful. He sends a judge. Everything's okay until the judge dies, and then they start over. But remember, this cycle that we're talking about that spins around and around is also spiraling out of control and getting worse and worse. And today we'll see that even some of the elements that we expect from this cycle that we've become so familiar with are gone the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord verse 1 so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years 40 years then we come to verse 2 and we zoom in on a certain man of Zorah there was a certain man of Zorah the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah now if you remember The cycle that we're used to seeing here is sin, judgment, uh, crying out for mercy, and then the Savior, right? What have we missed from verse 1 to verse 2? Have you noticed? I'm going to actually ask that. What's missing? The crying out part, right? They didn't even ask God for help. Yikes. This is how terrible things have gotten. They have completely given up. As we come to chapter 13, this is the last echo of that cycle that we've become so familiar with. And the author, in a way, replaces it with a phrase that we'll see next week that I've been really excited to get to. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Israel has yet again done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so they were given into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, Again, back to your outline here. We're looking at the selfishness of Samson, and he has two blind spots. We talk about the blindness of arrogance and the blindness of lust. And then the second part of this, the satisfaction of the true king, and, and that's why I quote this from or quote when I why I read this from uh, chapter seventeen to come. That in those days there was no king in Israel, so everybody did what was right in their own what eyes. This is a major theme of of vision and sight and eyes and these kind of things. This is terminology. um, The author of Judges mentions again and again and again, and that's what we're going to kind of see as we track the life of Samson. But Israel has again done this, and they're given into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years, a very long time. This time around, as you've noted, the people don't even cry out for salvation. This is not like an act of holiness on their part saying, we shouldn't even try because we know he's not going to answer. This is a sign of how far from God that they've fallen. They don't even realize that there is a, their true God who they've rejected would actually listen to them and send them a savior. And the amazing thing is, is that he still does send a savior. And that's what is so cool about chapter 13. Even though it's, Terribly depressing that that move from verse 1 to 2 it doesn't include what they really, how they really ought to have responded. God is still gracious. Recall last week that the Lord spoke directly to the nation and told them to call out to their own gods that they've chosen to worship. And when they heard those words from them, they realized, man, all right, Lord, we have done what is evil in your sight. Do with us whatever you think is right. It didn't really rhyme that good, but, you know, that's how it came back in my mind. Do what you see is right. And when they said that, the Lord was merciful. And remember that there's that great phrase that says that he became impatient over their turmoil. It's a great phrase in that previous story regarding Jephthah. But this attitude is gone entirely just in the in, in one cycle shift over. They have completely forgotten about this humility that they, have, they should have before the Lord and that the Lord exalts the humble and that he's patient and kind. With the blindnesses that we mention here of arrogance and of lust, we'll explore that in Samson's life, but we need to recall that gradually the Lord began to select judges that exemplified the failings of the people that they called to save. Gideon was weak and doubtful. That's something about Israel. Jephthah was an outcast who embraced the most horrendous of pagan worship. If you remember, he actually sacrificed his daughter, thinking that he could be made right with God in that way. The blindness of Samson's lust and his arrogance will show that the people that have abandoned the Lord time and time again have now come so far that they don't even consider that they might be saved by the God that they've rejected. You know, it's hard for us to ask for help when we've, ch- when we've chased the thing that we ought not to have chased. We should have ignored it. And maybe we sometimes have been left too prideful to acknowledge that we were wrong in whatever it was that we pursued. We might decide to try to work our own way out alone or simply embrace the circumstances and adapt to a new lifestyle, as harsh as it may be. And that's what nation, the nation of Israel did. They decided to just say, hey, the Philistines are in charge. We're just going to lean into it, and that's our new life. We'll see that in chapter 15 when the uh, men from Judah come to Samson, and they want to arrest him and give him over to the Philistines because they're, he's causing too much trouble for the Philistines. It's crazy like how, how deep and how far away, really, they are from the concept of God as their Savior. And yet, I think it's a little bit more familiar to us than we maybe want to admit. So, in chapter 13, a child is promised. It gives us a marvelous picture of the Lord's plan to save and to buy back his people who have wandered so far and yet they aren't even calling for help. The promise of this child that have no hope of children speaks clearly to Israel's situation as it's a reflection of how the Lord has brought about his plan in the history even before the book of Judges. Promising an unexpected child is one of the Lord's greatest signs of his intentions. So look at Judges 13, 4, and 5. The angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife, and he says, Be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Does this sound a little bit Luke 2-ish to anybody? You know, like Christmas kind of sounding, right? No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, a really cool thing that I don't go into a whole lot of detail in here. But a really cool study that you could do, two things at this point. One, who is this angel of the Lord? Is this a Christophany? Do you know what a Christophany is? This idea that Jesus, even before he became human, appeared to the Old Testament saints and delivered God's message himself. That's pretty incredible. But the second thing here is, what is the connection between Samson and a guy like John the Baptist? Both you know, announced before their birth to unexpected parents that were barren, that were not expecting to have any children, and both sort of forerunners of one who will come before. Samson, his mission here is to begin to save Israel. From who? The Philistines. Who really saves? Okay, now God saves Israel from the Philistines, but a human person is used by God. Who is that human person? Who saves Israel from the Philistines? Kills kills ten thousands of them. Do you know? Oh, Who? David does. And David is, of course, a picture of Christ. It's super cool. That's just kind of a fun thing to, you know, interest you hopefully in further study. But this Nazarite vow would have been understood by Manoah and his wife, but the mission of the child is still very mysterious to them. He will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Other judges were chosen to bring about complete salvation for a time from their current enemies. And, you know, you look at Othniel and Ehud, Deborah and Barak, even though they came and they delivered from the enemies at hand, they were still only delivering a temporary salvation. And so the work of Samson will be as well. This is super cool in that it points to the one who will ultimately defeat not only the Philistines, like David will, but points further on to the greater David, who is... Jesus, right? Yes, he is the one, not only who will defeat the Philistines, but who will defeat sin itself and all evil. This lines up with the ominous commentary of the narrator to come, revealing the issue with the nation was the lack of a king. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, Because there's no king in Israel. That's why we're focusing this study on this idea of finding the king in the kingless kingdom. Not just because there's great alliteration in there, but because Jesus is in this book of Judges. And when you find him, it's exciting. It is invigorating. You realize that God's plan has spanned thousands of years more than what you expect when you hear the Christmas story and the Easter story. He was planning this all the way back in the book of Judges and, of course, all the way back in Genesis, We have the Proto-Evangelion, as scholars call it, the first gospel, that when Adam and Eve fell, God promises Eve that the fruit of her womb will crush the serpent's head. And who is that? Jesus. Awesome. Awesome, awesome stuff. He's going to bring total victory over the greatest enemy of his people. He's the one who will come as a child to an unlikely family. And here, is presumably coming to announce Samson's role. Verses 24 through 26 of chapter 13, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. See, this still sounds like Luke 2 a little bit, doesn't it? Or maybe not Luke 2, I can't remember exactly where it says that he grew in wisdom and stature before God and man, but that's the description given Jesus as he grows, and this is what's happening with Samson too. Verse 25, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Dan between Zorah and Eshterah. There's such cool, there's just amazing verbs used for what the Holy Spirit does. You just see this first one, the Holy Spirit stirring in them, in, in Samson. That, that is so cool. Before, we've seen the Holy Spirit um, falling upon or clothing the judges. But what we're going to see here is the Holy Spirit stirring, like working something up in Samson to, to bring about the salvation of God's people. And then when, when he does these great acts of strength, every time it says the Holy Spirit rushes on him. That's cool. That'll about make you Pentecostal, man. That's exciting. Whew. Stirring something up in me, I guess. All right, so Samson's selfishness. First, we're going to see the blindness of lust yielding nothing but disappointment. And that begins with forbidden marriage. Look at chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my what? Eyes. So, Sorry, this is the theme and this is the title, okay? Vision, what we're seeing and what we're thinking is right. You know, forbidden marriage sounds exciting and perhaps stirs up ideas of rebellious love like Romeo and Juliet or Tony and Maria or Model and Zaitl or Aida and Radames. You know these people, right? It's mostly for the musical fans in the crowd, which you, know, you got to try these out and just see if anybody knows any of them. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof, Model and Zaitl. Okay, Aida and Radames, Aida, good musicals. Anyway, remember that the reason Samson's plan to marry this Philistine woman was wrong is because whenever intermarriage happened with God's people and the Canaanites, Israel would begin to worship their false gods instead of the true God. It wasn't an issue of intermarriage itself. The Bible doesn't condemn intermarriage. It condemns marriages of unequally, unequally yoked people like Paul will describe in the New Testament. So if you are married to somebody who's going to stop you from worshiping the one true God, the Bible says that is not a good marriage, and that is what Samson is doing wrong here. And again, in verses 2 and 3, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Even before Samson has his first experience of the Holy Spirit rushing on him and giving him superhuman strength, he already has the mindset that he wants what he wants right now. It was not entirely because he realized, I'm the strongest guy around and I can do whatever I want. He already had the hard attitude of saying, I want what I want when I want it. And I want it right now, burger, fries, and Coke. Coca-Cola, sorry. Yeah, fast food, that kind of idea. Um, not to say that Samson suddenly is tempted by this newfound strength, but his heart is already in the wrong place. Verse 4 is the key statement for the whole plan of Samson's life, and I realized I didn't even read that. Verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. This is the most important verse in the whole four chapters that we're going to look at here. All right, The most important one is that through everything that Samson does, Samson doesn't have a moment where he says, you know what? I'm a judge of Israel. I better get my act together and do the right thing. God doesn't expect that from him. He doesn't plan on it. And so he's looking for an opportunity for whatever Samson's going to do to get at the Philistines and to stop them from ruling over his people. In Samson's total disregard for his vow that we're going to see, we get a picture not only of how far from the Lord Samson is, but how far Israel has wandered as a nation. The Lord was so strapped for opportunities that he had to use Samson's blind lust for wrongdoing. And this reminded me of something John MacArthur said once. He said, if God didn't use sinful people, he wouldn't have anyone to use. How awesome is God that he can work sovereignly through even sinful actions of his people to bring about his salvation. It's incredible. Now we come to an interlude with a lion. How exciting is this guy's life? He's just on his way to get married, and suddenly a lion shows up on the sidewalk and probably just roars at him. We don't have any idea that the lion is actually, you know, aggressively attacking Samson, but he shows up, he roars, and Samson does what, of course, he does here. He, <laughs> Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces. Wow. I mean, this is one of those stories that you read and you're like, yeah, I've read this 150 times, but it's still pretty amazing. It ends up being an opportunity for his appetite to speak louder than his non-existent commitment, unfortunately. He was supposed to be committed to an oath, this Nazarite vow, and he is not. He is more committed to his own appetite, and we'll see that in a second. The Lord, who is going to use Samson despite his decisions, grants his Holy Spirit to rush upon him, even though Samson will return sometime later and find that corpse and find a beehive within that corpse and break another part of his vow by touching a dead body. Just to show us of God's thought about sin. Does he ask his subjects to run from temptation, live a holy life before him, and yet does he himself think little of sin or uncleanness? That he would know that Samson is going to do the wrong thing and still empower him to do it? Does that mean that God really doesn't care that much about sin? Or does this fit in with the plan of the Lord to remain faithful to the promise he made to his people, even all the way back to Abraham hundreds of years earlier? Should we be flippant about sin and temptation? knowing that the Lord has brought us this far anyway, so Jesus' blood covers all my sins, so why does it matter what I do? The point of these Old Testament stories, again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, is that they stand as an example for us, for our instruction. These stories should prompt us to holy living, never losing hope in our inevitable failures, but to see that the Lord is serious about his commitment to his people and even works patiently through our Failures, our inability to do what he calls us to do, and even our active disobedience against his will. He still works faithfully to accomplish his goal. The blindness of arrogance yields defeat. And this is what happens at the wedding when he decides to do a little bit of gambling through a party riddle. So verses 10 through 13 of chapter 14. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirteen companions to be with him. And Samson said, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. They said to him, Put put your riddle, that we may hear it. We can can read the, the actual riddle later on but to bring embarrassment to his Philistine companions and probably under the influence of alcohol from the festivities he was a part of, which of course this is breaking a second condition of his Nazarite vow. That's saying that he was not to drink anything from the fruit of the vine. He presents a riddle to get himself rich quick. The Philistines can't figure it out. And after threatening his wife, they deliver the answer springing from his exploit with the lion and the honey thereafter. They go to his wife and they say, you better tell us or bad things are going to happen. And of course, she gets it out of Samson, gets the answer, gives it to them. And Samson is really mad about this. Unsurprisingly, his arrogance has yielded defeat. He was blind to the treachery of his opponents. And so he travels 23 miles down to Ascalon in a rage. Boy, that would have given you plenty of time to cool off and make a good decision when you get there. Obviously, that wasn't enough for him. He kills 30 unsuspecting Philistines so that he can pay his debt back with their clothing. uh, Chapter 14, 19 through 20. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. This is amazing. The Holy Spirit again bails Samson out of his situation. By now, let's make it clear that Samson's power, contrary to what he thinks of it, is not actually his own, and it is certainly not subject to his will. When the Lord decides, he acts graciously to Samson and provides his spirit to accomplish these great feats of strength. So his wife is given away. Samson's next disappointment comes months later. He returns to his wife with a young goat, sort of peace offering, kind of like coming with a bouquet of flowers. He's hoping that he can move forward with the marriage, but he finds out from his father-in-law, who's not really his father-in-law, that his wife has been given to his best man at his wedding. Samson's obviously furious about this, and he immediately forms a plan of revenge against the Philistines. And his plan is 300 foxes, are most likely actually jackals, either way the forthcoming arsonist atrocities are directly a result of the disappointment Samson's lust has brought him to. He acts out in a rage. And the amazing thing is that God uses this rage to strike another blow against the Philistines. Versus, okay, so 15, jumping ahead to verses four and five, the Philistines are going to respond by fighting fire with fire and burn his wife's family to death. Yikes. Samson strikes them hip and thigh or head to toe, which he considered justice against them for a fight that he had essentially started. All the while, we need to have fourteen four in our minds. Again, the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, and this is what he's come up with. In chapter 15, Samson is arrested by 3,000 men from Judah. Can you imagine 3,000 men coming to arrest one guy? That's, what, that, that's the reputation of Samson, not only among his own nation, but against among the nation of the Philistines, as we'll see later on as well. 3,000 Judahites find him to arrest him. and God's people still have no desire to be freed from their situation. Samson sees this as an opportunity to kill more Philistines, which, of course, he's game for. Sure enough, the Lord is actually on board with this plan as well. So then we have 14 through 17. Let's read those. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arm became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down 1,000 men. As soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth which simply means Jawbone Hill. So he kills a thousand of them with a nine-inch donkey jawbone. Satisfied with his rage here, Samson sings a song about himself. He basically gives himself all the credit for the victory. It would be kind of like you coming in here on Sunday mornings and praising yourself, singing a song about the wonderful things you did for Jesus the week before. Interestingly then, after killing these guys, he becomes very thirsty and in humility that will foreshadow the humility of his death, God responds to his thirst by granting water from a rock. And you see this, he says in verse 18, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? This terrible thirst that he was thirsty enough to die, he says, brought him to genuine humility. We see that because he recognizes that the Lord has granted this great salvation. And he calls him the Lord, the covenant name of the God of Israel. So Samson, in light of this humility, we can kind of hope that as the end of the chapter says here, he ruled over, he led Israel, judged Israel for 20 years after that, hopefully with some sense of humility and trusting the Lord. Now we come to the last chapter, chapter 16, and we see lust being recalled again, the deception of lust, the blindness of lust rather, that leads to disappointment, And the tool of disappointment here, the one who brings that disappointment, is none other than Delilah. And this is probably the most familiar section of Samson's story to most of us. There is again this big time jump from 15 to 16. For 20 years, Samson judged Israel and did whatever he did to protect them from the Philistines. And then one night, he proudly walks into the major major Philistine city of Gaza, And then he travels 40 miles, pulling behind him the pillars of the city city gates of Gaza all the way to Hebron, which is just kind of an awesome thing. He just kind of went up to the gate and said, yeah, you're done with this. Well, of course, this is very symbolic. And this is the beginning of the end for him, the beginning of his last mission to take the gates of the city, and then he's going to eventually tear down the temple. Sorry, spoiler warning here. He's going to tear down the temple of Dagon in the same city. Pretty awesome. There's some thought that perhaps this, his, this was his plan the whole time. And so there's an interesting thing here in the beginning of chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told Samson had to come here, and then they get ready to ambush him. And that's when he decides, I'll let you know just how powerful I am by tearing up this huge gate and, and dragging it all the way to Hebron. But what's interesting here is that we kind of assume, hey, we've seen how Samson is with the ladies. We've got an idea of what he's doing in verse 1 of chapter 16. But there is actually some thought that his plan the whole time was kind of like the plan of the spies at Jericho. They snuck in. Rahab let them in. Rahab was also a prostitute. But there's no idea that, that the spies at that point did anything wrong or unlawful. They were simply sneaking into the city to um, find out how, what its weakness was so that he could take it down and obey the Lord. So that might have been what Samson was doing. Either way, he quickly finds himself in a new relationship after this sneak attack at Gaza. This relationship is not based on love at all, even though Delilah has this line where she says, you hate me and do not love me. If you really loved me, you would tell me the secret of your strength. Well, of course, Delilah does not love Samson, and Samson does not love Delilah either. Delilah was probably the most beautiful Philistine gal around, and she was probably completely set up by the Philistines from the beginning, ready to trick him into revealing a weakness. They thought if they could do something to remove the strength of Samson, that they'd have him. Of course, we know that the Lord didn't give him, give Samson that as unfettered access to the Spirit's strength. He worked when he wanted to. This is how he still works today. This is a problem I'll just call out for an example here. This is a problem with saying, hey, later tonight we're going to have a healing service, from six o'clock to seven o'clock, saying that if you come, God's gonna heal you, but you gotta come between that hour of six o'clock and seven o'clock. We just, we can't declare what God is going to do. We can trust Him for what He's gonna do, but the Spirit comes and goes as He pleases, as Jesus says in John 3. Unfortunately, Samson doesn't understand that. Samson thinks that he has a complete pass, and he's already broken two elements of his Nazarite vow, and that makes him think that he's free to access the Spirit's strength whenever he needs the Spirit, or whenever he thinks he does. And so we come to his arrogance again revisited. Why would he leave me now is the thought on Samson's mind as Delilah asks him these three times, tell me what the secret of your strength is. Oh, new bowstrings, or oh, this or whatever. No, every time he's just laughing at that. The Philistines come in thinking that he's weakened and he kills all of them over and over again. He's become arrogant. The Philistines are looking for a magic formula and Samson thinks that God's grace is limitless even to a person who completely disregards him in his actions. Why would he leave me now? Samson asks. After everything else I've done, why would he decide that this is suddenly the last straw? Should I not have sinned more so that grace would abound even more? What Samson finds is that when he ultimately reveals the truth to Delilah about his hair, the Spirit of God has left him. Church, don't think little of Samson's thinking in your own life, the temptation to think this way to think that a little sin isn't too bad, right? A little white lie, looking at something I shouldn't look at, thinking too highly of myself, even just giving myself a little pat on the back for that great thing that I did. This is pride. It's the creature telling the Creator that he's too strict, he's too serious about sin. He needs to lighten up a little bit. The Lord shows us through Samson that he is serious, and though he is long-suffering, he is patient, He also says, be sure that your sin will find you out if you do not repent. Samson had all these opportunities over 20 plus years to recognize what his actions showed of his heart before the Lord. And he does not repent. So he's humbled. We come to the bookend of what we track from the beginning of Samson's story to the end. Samson is now literally blinded by his abusive captors enslaved he is humbled beyond what he expected he's learned that God's patience has come to an end with him and he wonders if he has lost that call that was put on his life before he was even born a major lesson we need to learn from Samson's blindness at the end of this story is about our own blindness in the middle of our story What things of this world's perspective have blinded us from a kingdom-minded perspective, from a view of the kingdom, what God is doing, what God is building in our midst? We need to admit that we have blind spots. And, and we need to admit that because we obviously don't even know what they are sometimes. That's why it makes them blind spots. We're not always aware of what our sin is, but we need to recognize that it's there. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, show me, as, as uh, David wrote in the Psalms, search me and know me. Reveal any secret sin to me so that I can repent of it. And the amazing thing is, is though we don't want to do that because we don't want to know what we've done wrong against God, and maybe we're afraid of how God's going to react When we humbly approach him, the Bible says, and we'll read this later, that he exalts the humble. He brings them to himself. And yes, he reveals our sin. He reveals how that thing that we thought wasn't so bad is really awful. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder against him. God is serious about sin, and yet he's also serious about his grace. And so when we confess and when we come to him and admit, Lord, I'm weak, I'm a complete loser before you. I have nothing to offer that is good. I have nothing but sin in my heart. His response is not to say, let me tell you how really terrible you are so that you can really feel, and I'm going to leave you there. But he says, yes, this is your sin, and yet this is what I have done to cover that sin through the blood of my only son. We may be blinded by lust, um, wanting something that we cannot have, what we ought not to have. Or perhaps some of us think too much of ourselves, of our own abilities or accomplishments, and we're thus blinded by arrogance, like Samson was. God has made us to be different in the world in which we live, and we cannot be like the rest of the fish swimming around in the water. We must see things differently than other people see them. The Philistines praise their God, Dagon, for delivering their enemy into their hands, completely unaware that the one true God has his champion right where he wants them. You remember where Samson was? He was in the temple of Dagon. He was grinding at the mill. He was doing the work of a donkey. He was completely humiliated, completely um, used just for entertainment, just to, to the praise of a false deity but this is right where God wants him. On one level, Samson is at this place of deep humility, which is where God wants his people to be always. It's not his desire for them to have to come to such physical depths of despair to reach that humility. And the dynamic duo of James and Peter will give excellent instruction as to what the Lord calls us to. And that is a humbling of ourselves before circumstances can humble us. So let's look at these passages. First, James 4.10. James tells us, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You may be familiar with this verse, but I would like for you to think about it in a fresh way this morning. He will exalt those who humble themselves. It is worth it for you to humble yourself, even if you don't think you need to. Take a moment of humility before him and realize that he will exalt you. And the thing that will happen so you go through seasons where you're almost like hooked on confessing your sin to the Lord. Because what he does is he gives you more grace and more grace and more grace. And the more you realize, oh, I'm, this is a terrible thing, this is a terrible way that I've thought, or the terrible thing that I've said, or whatever it is, and you realize more and more how wicked our sin is, you realize more and more how great the grace of God truly is. And so Peter says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. At the proper time. When's the proper time? Whenever he wants to. It may take some time. It might take some time to reveal your sin to your heart, to, for him to reveal your sin, and for you to embrace it, recognize what it is, call it what it is, and... Give it over to the Lord, but he will exalt you. Notice Samson did not humble himself. He had to wait for life to humble him. He had to wait for all of his decisions to bring about disappointment and ultimately defeat for him to come to a place of humility. And we'll read that passage in a second here. But look again, our our great blessing of being New Testament believers is we have this full Old Testament and full New Testament and we can see these passages that James and Peter tell us we can humble ourselves so that the world doesn't have to humble us in order for us to see our sin as it really is. Just as God is been gracious to Samson time and time again, not just in spite of, but even working through Samson's selfish, blinded by lust and arrogance, God will once again give grace to Samson in this humble estate. And this is, again, why the story is written for us. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, it's been given to us for an example, for our learning. So learn from Samson here. Because when he's humbled, he recognizes who God is, he recognizes who he himself is, and the Lord gives him grace. That's on the personal level for Samson. On a larger scale, this is right where the Lord wanted Samson. His vision was to begin to defeat the Philistines through him, and his mission was to find an opportunity to strike at the most perfect time. The Philistines think that they've won. They've turned it into an idolatrous feast. They are partying. They think they've beaten Israel. They've beaten God. They've beaten the strongest man the world has ever known. They're feeling really good about themselves. Sin is running rampant. And Yahweh's champion seems to be down for the count. 16. 16. Verses 28 through 31, look at those with me. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, "O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now picture this in your head. Don't just think, yeah, I know this story, I've been to Sunday school 150 times. Picture what's going on and how awesome this must have looked. and terrifying if you were there, particularly. Maybe think about it from a far away distance. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one end and his left hand on the other, and Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. What a great last phrase, right? Whew. I mean, Hollywood can't come up with good stuff like this. He bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. And he had judged Israel 20 years. (laughs) Samson is humbled in this passage. The Lord is gracious, even though Samson's life is completely over at this point. There's a tone of realization in his words. Did you hear it? Though blinded, he sees why the Lord has brought him to where he was. He's ready to embrace the fact that his life, though largely driven by his own blind arrogance and lust, has been sovereignly orchestrated and used by the Lord for his salvation plan. I'm really curious with Samson if he understood vengeance in truth in that moment and how the Lord sees revenge. Because it's kind of what he's asked for, but in looking to the Lord, he acknowledges that none of his strength, is truly his own. Perhaps he grasps that biblical fact from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35: uh, "Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time when their foot shall for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly." Samson looks to the Lord, and yes, he wants vengeance. He's mad at the fact that he has messed this up royally, and the Philistines are getting their way. And God is going to be gracious to him. And he's going to grant him to be effective in his end. So now we come to the end here. We've seen Samson's uh, sinfulness, his selfishness. Now we're seeing the Savior's satisfaction. So first off, the vision of the king finds joy in who he is, in him. When you realize you've been set free from a debt you could never pay, it should free you to want to serve that person willingly knowing that nothing could change what he's done for you, even what you do for him. The Lord can no more love us in Christ than he does in this very moment. Do you know that? Nothing that you do from this point on will make God love you more. He loves you the way he loves Christ. The proper response is not debauchery, this idea of freedom, of whatever I want to do because God's going to love me anyway, but loyalty, to really see who God is, what he's done, the cost that he's paid to make us his, to be our true king. We should be loyal to him. We should be faithful. We should want to be a part of what he's doing. The proper response is not reluctant obligation, but overflowing joy, Where else could you find such a love than in Christ? Where else could you find such grace, a good thing that you don't deserve, than at the cross where he died and the empty tomb where he rose so that you might rise again in eternal life? To what else could your eyes be opened to behold a greater gift than the spotless Son of God crucified for you? Secondly, the vision of his kingdom finds victory in his work. The kingdom of God is the work of Christ. I will build my church, he says. Jesus, having his birth proclaimed to an even less expecting mother, a young girl, a virgin. Jesus was betrayed by his own. He came to save and hand it over to the enemies, just like Judah handed Samson over to the Philistines. He didn't suffer ultimate defeat, though, at the cross, because no one took his life from him, but he laid it down freely. He gave it willingly. Jesus lived a life completely submissive to the Father. He is the true king in the kingless kingdom, weighed down by no sin of his own, unlike Samson, but at the cross taking the full weight of his people's sin on himself as Samson's sinful decisions and actions were used by God to bring about his glory in redeeming his people, the sin of all God's people, our rebellion, our blind arrogance and lust was put to the purpose of bringing the greatest glory imaginable to the Son of God. He gave himself for us. He was not permanently crushed under the pillars of his enemies. But when the full wrath of God against sin came on Jesus, he drained the cup dry and rose from the rubble three days later in complete victory. Not just starting to save his people, but he has completed it. And he is done and he is seated at the right hand of God because his work is done. Now he works through us. And that's why I want to read from Ephesians 2. Verses 12 through 22, just listen to this. Paul says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. "...by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, and thereby killing the hostility." Killing the hostility. He killed our sin and therefore gave us a right relationship with God. Verse 17, "...he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being a cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." That is what he is doing. If you could catch a vision for the kingdom God is building and that you are a part of that kingdom, what could he do through you? This is his work. This is his completed work. He hasn't just begun to save his people. We are saved. So will you wait until you've been crushed by the world to get on mission with the king and bringing about his kingdom here on earth? There are others who need to hear of his victory and escape the wrath to come. Will you lay aside arrogance or lust in your heart and make Christ the center of all you are doing? Could there truly be anything else you could find in this life that would really satisfy? Like King Solomon who would come after, Samson's table tale rings the truth that the utilizing power for selfish gain is blindness to what we were made for. For us to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be with him in his kingdom coming is the ultimate gain and the greatest Permanent victory. Here are three reflection questions for you. First of all, is there a blind spot of sin or temptation in your life that you haven't addressed? Is there something you need to deal with before the Lord? Remember that he exalts the humble. He's ready to give you more grace as you repent. Secondly, is your heart fixed on Christ for satisfaction? Is there some other means that you're looking to? Or perhaps do you even just think, Christ isn't enough for me, I'll never really be satisfied in all this Christian stuff. Would you look to him and even perhaps... Just ask him to satisfy your heart. And then, lastly, do you have a kingdom perspective? Can you walk out if you're ready for the opportunities that the Lord has already set before you to show Christ to other people, particularly those who do not know him? Let's pray. Our fathers, we come to sing one more song. Lord, would you stir in our hearts as you did with Samson? Would you show us your will? Would you draw us close to you? Would you reveal our sin? Lord, there's so much that we could grab from these, these chapters and ask you to create in our hearts, uh, create a clean heart in us to reveal our wickedness, reveal our lust, reveal our arrogance so that we can repent of them, so we can draw closer to you. Thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless because you cannot deny yourself and you have not denied your plan. We give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.